February 1979, I was living in Eugene, Oregon. Gail and I had been dating about eight months, and uh, I am thinking, okay, it is time to ask that woman to, to marry me. And so I invite her to the coast. Don't tell her what I'm doing. I don't think she knows. Did you know, Gail? Did you know? She didn't know. She said she didn't know. All right. So we go an hour west to the Oregon coast, which is gorgeous. And there was a certain place down from this beautiful lighthouse that I had in mind. We couldn't find it, so we're driving back and forth, back and forth. Finally found it. Started walking down the, the, the beach there, and uh, there's a, a huge log, really a tree that the surf had washed up. And so I said, Let, let's sit there for a little bit. So we sat there, and immediately I dropped to my knee and pour out my heart, my unrequited love to her, and, you know, that just pledged my loyalty and faithfulness, and, and asked her if she'll marry me. She immediately said, I'll have to check my calendar. <laughs> Don't know where she got that. She ended up saying yes. And so we got engaged February 23rd, 1979, which I guess, Gail, will be 40 years this coming February. And uh, little did we know that uh, it would be a lot harder than we thought it would be. And so a few months later, we get married. We moved back to Dallas, Texas, where I've got one year of seminary left. So I'm a full-time graduate student, a little bit over-conscientious probably. And I am running 100 miles a week because I'm trying to run world-class marathons. And besides those two challenges, I, I've, I'm struggling with a mental disease that if you've been around Wood's Edge, you know about OCD. And besides all that, of course, I've got the normal sinful selfishness that uh, we all bring to marriage. And it was challenging, especially the first year, but really in, in some ways the first decade, really we, we see a turning point the first 13 years. You know, we had some good things during those years. We had a bond. We, we were together serving Christ, but we didn't do conflict well at all. And truth be known, though I brought most of the problems to the table, Gail contributed a little bit herself, didn't you? Is that fair to say? She did. <laughs> She'll agree. And um, so 13 years in, had a crisis in, in ministry right before we start Wood's Edge. We go see um, a businessman who just retired and who helped pastors in crisis, spent the summer with him, and he uh, immediately focused on the main problem, not the ministry, but the marriage. And it was something about it. Gail and I together today just see him as a hero for us because God used him so significantly to, to change our marriage. It wasn't so much one thing that he said. It, it was his life and his heart, uh, the way he spoke of his wife, Eileen. They'd been married 40 years at the time, and he spoke of his marriage like a newlywed. And clearly, here is this man who had been very successful in business, who this was the priority of his life, not his career, but his marriage. And he gave it priority energy. And he, he said to me, Jeff, you know, I, I believe that we husbands, that's the main thing we'll be evaluated but by when we get to heaven, you know, not, not other things, but our marriage, how we treat our wives. And it just freed me up in so many ways, and God just used it to make some real turns. And uh, though today, 25 years later or so, um, uh, we, we feel so close. I mean, we still got our challenges, but it, it, it's made such a difference. You know, the fact that Gil and I had some real challenges in the early going allows us to, to empathize and to understand what it's like to have a tough marriage, and, and now we know what it's like to have a, a really good marriage. And, and I can tell you, we could both tell you, we're so glad we persevered, so glad we endured, so glad that um, we, we did the hard work necessary to work through problems in marriage. And uh, 
This morning, we're going to look at what Genesis 2, the foundational passage on marriage, all the Bible, what it says about marriage. Now, I, I feel a, I, I know that some of you, you're not married, and uh, you know, you don't really want to hear a message on marriage, and I, I understand that, I, I do, but, but you know, you could get married in the future, that's a possibility, and besides, you maybe have a child or a grandchild that's going to get married, and you maybe want to send them a link or something, what the Bible says, and besides that, uh, marriage today in American society, including in the church, including at Wood's Edge, is a mess. It's a mess. I wish, uh, I don't really want to wish this on you, but if you sat where I sat and, and, and the, heard about the troubled marriages that come across my radar, it just breaks your heart. Some of you are sitting there and you have no idea that a year from now you'll be just barely hanging on and fighting for your marriage's life. You have no idea. And if I could jar you from some complacency, if I just, particularly this week, I just such a, I have such a praying this morning in my journal, just Lord, I need your spirit, Lord God, to empower this. Because uh, it's easy for us to just, I got that, or I don't need this. And Satan is just killing us when it comes to marriages and a family. And we need the power of God to transform marriages that we can be different. I mean, this represents God's love for us, and it is a key battleground. Others of you have been through a painful divorce, and it's just painful to even think about. I, I, I can only imagine. But, but you, you recognize God can bring healing. He can bring healing. Others of you here are doing really well, and that's great. They've got some marriages that are doing super. Uh, some of you, uh, you actually are doing well. Others of you, uh, particularly some of you husbands, just think you're doing well, and you're not really doing that well. And, and you need to ask your wife how we're we really doing in marriage, and you might find out not so good. Um, but some of you are doing great. Uh, nobody has arrived. We all could improve. Uh, some of you are really struggling. You're not sure you're going to make it. Not sure you want to make it. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Just as I'm speaking from God's word, that the Spirit of God would work in all of our lives, wherever we are on the journey. If you'd stand with me, I'm going to read the passage in Gen Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 18, where we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's holy word, church. Please be seated. 
So we see from the outset that marriage is God's idea. It's God's creation, and it is God's gift for our good, for His glory. And the passage begins in a rather unusual way with the simple words, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, if, you, if I read all of Genesis 1 and 2, then we would have read, read com, com, repeatedly in Genesis 1, it was good, it was good, it was good. Seven times in Genesis 1 alone, the very last time it says it was very good. All that God created was very good. And Genesis 2 starts out, um, you know, talking about man being in the Garden of Eden and his paradise and the way God formed him more carefully, more details about it. But then all of a sudden we come to verse 18 and it says, it was not good. And it's such a jarring contrast. What's not good? Well, it's not good that the man is alone. So the very first problem that we see in the Bible is aloneness, isolation by the man. And God says that's not good. Man's got God above him. He's got the animals below him, but he has no one alongside him as a companion, as a life companion, as a life partner. And God says it's not good. Now, now think about this. Adam is in a perfect environment. I mean, this is paradise. There, there's just gorgeous waterfalls and roses and trees and vegetation. And there's no cancer, no disease, no problems whatsoever. No problems at all, except he's alone. And God said, this shouldn't be. Now, as a, as a parenthesis, in Genesis 1, we see God in plurality, us, our, he uses these plural pronouns, creating man in his image, male and female. And so God has always lived in community, in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, plurality within the unity of the God. So God is so deeply relational, and he creates us in his image, so we are hardwired to live in relationship. We're just not created to live in isolation. Now, when, when I say isolation, I'm not talking about nobody's around you, a hermit. I'm talking about you could be right in the middle of a crowded, crowded sidewalk in New York City and be completely alone. I'm talking about significant relationship where you share your heart, share your soul with one another. Somebody knows you, and you know them, and there is a bond there. And God has hard, hardwired us for that. The problem is, is that we fear that kind of relationship because we've all been hurt by people. We, we fear rejection. And so we, we both long for this community and we fear this community. Let me encourage you, don't give way to the fear of Satan that you've got to be isolated and put up some barriers around you to protect your heart because that's no way to live. That's living life in black and white rather than like a color TV. And the best place on the planet to experience this kind of community is in the church of Jesus Christ because our bonds are eternal. Our bonds are based in the Jesus Christ. We've got the basis of forgiveness and unselfishness and God transforming us. This is the place. That's why we do groups all throughout our church. Joe uh, Lanzalotti earlier, he kind of leads all that ministry. Stephen Pancras right down the front row. Uh, home church groups are our bread and butter, but we have all kinds of groups. Let us help you. Let us help you. All right, all that's parenthesis about God created you for community and for relationship. Back to the passage, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, does this mean that uh, everybody needs to be married? Well, you know where I'm going to go with this, that of course not. Jesus was not married. Paul was not married. Uh, the, the book of 1 Corinthians 
in chapter 7 talks about the gift of celibacy. There are some advantages to serving God, being, being single. Uh, plus, there are others with the gift of marriage, but they, they haven't found the right partner, or their partner has died, or they've gone through a divorce, and uh, uh, all kinds of situations. And one thing we need to be crystal clear on the church, because sometimes there's this mentality that, you know, if, you, if you're not married and all these married people around, that somehow you're, you're less than or something, that nothing can be farther from the truth. The Bible teaches so emphatically that every single person in Jesus Christ, we're, completely, we're complete in Christ. We're not lacking anything. Uh, you, you don't need to be married to be complete in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies inside us because of Jesus Christ. And have no illusions about what marriage can do or cannot do. God can use marriage, and it's a gift, and it ultimately reflects God's love for us. But don't look to a spouse to meet your deepest needs. That won't happen. Your spouse is not your God. So whether or not you're single, don't expect one day a marriage to meet all your profound needs. Or if you're married, don't be looking to a spouse to meet your profound needs. Look to Jesus Christ alone. We're all complete in Him. So, all righty. It's not good for the man to be alone. God immediately says, I will make him a helper fit for him. So just think about the heart of God. God sees Adam in his, in his problem, in his need. Of course, he knows it's coming. But he says, I'll do something about it. And that's the heart of God for you too. I'll, I will intervene on your behalf. My heart for you is good. Now, God may not be on your timetable or my timetable. and may not give us what we want when we want it. But this is the heart of God for you. I will take care of you. I will pro provide what you truly need. That is the heart of God all through the Bible. We see that most clearly on the cross with our deepest needs, our need for forgiveness and our need for a Savior. So I will make a helper fit for him. Now, why does God use the word helper? The English word helper has a connotation of, you know, kind of an assistant, a junior assistant, somebody's a little bit less than. One of my first jobs during high school was to be a welder's helper. And that meant that I would hand the welding rods to the welder, and I would go around and do any task he wanted me to do. I was somebody less than. Um, we think of the word helper. We tend to think of the word that way. Now, you need to understand that the Hebrew word helper has none of those connotations of the English word. In fact, the word was used 13 times in the Old Testament, 10 of which it was used of God as our helper. So clearly, God's not our inferior. God's not our junior assistant. If anything, it's the opposite. God has resources and capacities that you lack, that I lack, and we need his help. And so it's a term of dignity. God was saying, Adam, you need help. I'll, I'll make someone who's got resources and capacities, abilities that you don't have. And by implication, he would be her helper also, and they will meet needs that they could not meet alone. Now, these aren't identical. They're complementary needs. They help each other. Think about pairs figure skating. Pairs figure skating in the Olympics is, is a great picture of marriage. I mean, they're not the same, but, you know, they each have their own abilities and complementary roles. I mean, he's a bit stronger. She's maybe a bit more graceful. He lifts. She jumps. He holds. She, she's held. Uh, but together, they can do something beautiful they cannot do alone. I mean, I don't care a thing really about figure skating. But in the Olympics, I, I, I watch figure skating because it's impressive. It's beautiful. 
And that is God's ideal for marriage, that you've got your own role, she's got her own role, he's got his own role, and together there can be beauty that does not exist apart. Now in the Bible, they're seen as equal life partners who help each other be all that God wants them to be. A wife is not valued primarily for sex or for parenting or childbirth or cooking or home or work in the home or uh, anything else. She is valued for herself as a partner, someone who is a complement to you, and together you help each other and you love each other and you support one another in every way. Each for the other, both for God. Your teammates, your, yeah, I, I'm her biggest fan. She's, she's my biggest fan. We, we support each other. We've got to, in this culture, we've got to get in mind because we sort of grow up, particularly as we're moving into the college years and getting a job after that. We somehow sort of think, you know, we've got to develop, uh, we've got to accumulate possessions and, you know, get a house and then get retirement and that sort of thing. Marriage was never given to accumulate possessions, but to develop persons. And your role in marriage is to help that spouse fully develop into what God has designed them to be. Fully develop into uh, the image of Christ uh, to be a much-loved woman or man. That is the design. That's the purpose of marriage. If that is not happening in your marriage, you've gotten off course. You've lost sight of the biblical picture, and you need to get back on it. Some of you perhaps need to get along with each other apologize to each other, and start over. Maybe have a renewal of your vows because this is God's design for you. The very first word that God uses with marriage, in the context of marriage, is the word helper, this equal life partner who focuses on helping the other one be all they could be. When I think about marriage, uh, Gail's best trait is a wife is that she has believed in me. And there are times I've lost my confidence in uh, various ways, and I've needed her to believe in me. In fact, every husband does. She uh, has defended me. She's encouraged me. She's supported me, even at my worst times. And I am so grateful. Uh, could not express adequately what that has meant to me. But some years ago, uh, there was a movie that came out called A Beautiful Mind. Anybody seen that movie? Hands? All right, number of you. All right, true story, Russell Crowe plays the lead. It's a true story about John Nash, who is a Princeton economist who is struggling with a mental disease, paranoid schizophrenia, and uh, he's, his wife just means the world to him uh, through this journey, through this very painful battle. And at the end of the movie, he wins the Nobel Prize. Now, um, I'm watching this movie with Gail, and I think both daughters are there, and uh, I would have gone early because I go early, save seats, so it's an excuse for me to read by myself with a little flashlight in the movie for 20 minutes. And um, so I'm there early driving myself, and we're watching this movie, and, and it brings up all this mental disease. And, and because if, if you've been around Woods Edge, you know I've struggled with obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's not paranoid schizophrenia, but it was so painful for so long. And so I'm watching this uh, thing and, and, and feeling his pain that mental disease is bringing, and I'm just very emotional, very emotional, and so I'm glad it's dark. And then at the end of the movie, 
he wins the Nobel, and, and in his final speech, the movie's about to end, he, he conveys uh, his deep gratitude for what his wife had meant to him in his struggle with mental disease. And when I see that, I'm completely undone. And I'm just uh, holding back tears. And uh, the movie ends, and Gail and the girls say something, and I probably grunt or something because that's too emotional to talk. And fortunately, they had their own car. They left, and, and I find my way out of there, drive home, do not go in the house because I'm just too emotional. I can't talk. And just the decades of pain that I've just been reminded of. And also the depth of my gratitude that I feel for Gail. It's just too emotional for me. And Gail's role in helping me um, through this and many other things, it's just so much I cannot adequately convey that. And that's God's design. God's design is that we be helpers for our mate in whatever way that involves. And so if you're married here, I want to ask you some questions just between you and God. Do you have this mindset, I am to help that person in any way I can? Do you know their needs, the marital needs that you can help with? Do you know their love language? Do you know what they need from you, what they want from you? You're, you're, you're a student uh, of your spouse. Do you have a, a, a deeply other-centered mindset or really a deeply self-centered mindset? Are you, are you thinking right now about what they could do better or what you could do? Since you've been married, has your, has your spouse developed and flourished or has your spouse wilted and uh, withered? If someone looks in the face of your spouse, do they see a much-loved woman or man or not so much? Questions for you and the Lord to talk about. Okay. All right. Notice that when God says, I will make him a helper, he, he, he elaborates a bit more. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the ESV is, is that's a good translation, but it's, it's a little tame. Some translations will say suitable for him, comparable to him, or even it could say corresponding to him. And the idea of this Hebrew preposition is someone who corresponds, but literally is an, is an opposite. So it's someone who's different, but who corresponds, who's equal to, but not the same identical S. And that's what we saw earlier about this complementary partner. This is someone who is different. You know, if I could just pause and think back to Genesis 1 through 3, which, as I've been saying all along, is the foundational passage in all the Bible. So many basics are here. You know, Genesis 1 through 3, the, the, the stuff in our culture today about same-sex marriage, this passage is so clear that it's such a distortion of what God's designed. Genesis 1, 27 when God first has the overview, he creates us male and female in his image. And we need both the maleness and the femaleness to, to fully express the plurality in the Godhead, within the unity of the Godhead. We need both maleness and femaleness. The, the very next verse, verse 28, the, the first command, be fruitful and multiply. You need maleness and femaleness. Here in our passage, first introduced to marriage, uh, they are complementary helpers who meet each other's needs as the opposites to one another. You know, um, if somebody doesn't have the Bible and, and is not a follower of Jesus Christ, well, you, you could get how Satan could deceive them and how the culture could blind them. But uh, we're disciples of Jesus Christ, and, and we know better. 
We've got the owner's manual right here. And so let's not be deluded about our culture. This is, this is God's design and what we need in marriage. So uh, I will make a helper fit for him. Sometime back, uh, there was a leading biography of President John Adams. David McCullough is one of our best biographers in our country. And uh, I read that book and probably got this story from it, this little anecdote that I'm going to tell. But John Adams and his wife Abigail had a very close relationship. And uh, while he was, I think, vice president, he's in Washington. She's in Boston where they live. And he is really stressed out. And he is writing her a letter. Notice what he says and the depth of how this pictures uh, what God intends a marriage to be. He writes to her. He says, I must go to you or you must come to me. I must entreat you to lose not a moment's time in preparing to come on that you may take off from me every care of life but that of my public duty, that you may assist me with your counsels and console me with your consolation. The times are critical and dangerous, and I must have you here to assist me. I must now repeat this with zeal and earnestness. I can do nothing without you. Now, I mean, that takes some humility, and he's the vice president of the United States, headed to be the president, and yet he's not embarrassed to say, Abigail, I need you. And that is God's design, that a marriage uh, more and more become that way. And Gail and I find that the longer we're married, the more and more that just it comes. And if that's not the trajectory you're on, start over. You're to be a helper, to meet needs, to supply lacks that your spouse needs from you. The first word in marriage is helper, someone who has resources and capacities that you lack. When Gail and I started dating about six months before the uh, event that I shared with you on the coast of Oregon about proposing, our first, first date, we went to see the movie Rocky. And this was the first movie, Rocky, you know, before all the spinoffs. And uh, w- later we said, you know, that's a little bit prophetic of our first years of marriage, Rocky. And uh, now, y- you might think that's a boxing movie, but that's not a boxing movie, is it? It's a love story. It's a love story. And uh, there's this one scene that you might remember if you've seen the movie. Okay, Rocky is dating Paulie, his friend, Paulie, who's whose life ambition is to be, uh, you know, a hitman or something. And um, pa- Paulie uh, has this, has a sister who doesn't really take care of herself, make herself look good, Adrian, kind of a plain person who works in a pet shop. And so Paulie one day is saying to his friend Rocky, he says, Rocky, I don't see the attraction. What's the attraction? You for my sister. And Rocky says something like, I don't know. Fill gaps, I guess. And Paulie's saying, what do you mean, fill gaps? And Rocky replies, he says, I got gaps, and she's got gaps, and together we fill gaps. Now that is Genesis 2.18, right there. (laughs) Together we fill gaps. And if you're not focused on the gaps of your spouse, But you're focused on your own gaps and what's happening, you've missed God's portrait. Because marriage, the whole point, purpose, is to depict a sacred romance. God's heart of love for you and the way he loves you. And we need to express that. And we're doing a lousy job. The church in America today is doing a horrible job when it comes to marriage. 
And there is no place under greater spiritual attack from the enemy who wants to devour our souls and the souls of our kids than in our marriages. And that's why I would so appeal to you that you would join me in regular prayer for marriages at Wood's Edge. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of these families. Because we need the power of the Spirit transforming marriages. I so long that you not think that, okay, we got this or doesn't apply to me, but that you would humbly receive God's word to you. Marriage is not to accumulate possessions, but to develop persons into all that they can be for the sake of Jesus Christ. This means that we seek to love our spouses sacrificially. We pray for them fervently. We study what we can do as spouses uh, continually. We, we want to help our spouse thrive and flourish and blossom and bloom to all that God's created them to be. And, and this, it, this dream of a Christ-like marriage, uh, so close, that is not only God's dream, but it ought to be our dream. And it is worth all, all the work and all the effort. So let's go for it with all we've got. Please stand with me. Well, friend, first of all, if you're here and you've not received uh, this sacred romance, this, this love of God that saved your, uh, sent his son to save you from your sin, right now breathe a prayer and say, yes, I will receive him. God knows your heart and he'll, he'll answer that prayer and give you eternal life and forgiveness right now, right now. Lord God, um, would you please bless the marriages at Wood's Edge? Because we really need your help. Every marriage at Wood's Edge and every Christ-honoring church in the city, Lord, would you please protect them. Lord, would you bring humility and forgiveness and selflessness deep in our souls and protect the marriages here. Lord, that's our prayer. That's our prayer. We trust that you hear this prayer, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.